Uh, so the men's group read the meeting in the Elisha house, which is decorated uh, for a children's ministry activity, a wonderful one. Uh, we're going to have it in Ballard Hall instead. And then another announcement coming up on March the 25th, Monday at 7.15, we will have an archdeaconry-wide feast for the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, we'll be the celebrant for Holy Communion, and Father Cleo, our local archdeacon, will be the homilist. And then the Women's Bible Study, marking the seven weeks of Easter. Ladies, spend time in Lent, learning and preparing to mark the seven weeks of Easter. You may attend the evening class on Tuesdays at 6.30 p.m., or the daytime class at 10 a.m. on Fridays. And then the children's activity is spelled out in your bulletin, the Lent program for preschoolers ages three through six. We walk for five weeks. Catechesis of the Good Shepherd Patron. That's a good program. Everything I look, I see in it, I like it. And, and St. Benedict, I want it. Okay, a Montessori, that's not an advertisement for St. Benedict, so I'll <laughs> A Montessori-based faith formation opportunity for preschoolers ages 3 through 6, Elijah House, 9.30 a.m. to 11 a.m., uh, 11.30 a.m., rather, on the Fridays of Lent. Uh, contact uh, Delaney Jonat. There's Delaney. Uh, or Carter Griezmann for information. You may sign up at Ballard Hall or email the office at allsaintsanglican.net. Then on Saturday, April the 6th at 2 p.m., Dr. Alan Shore will, uh, will perform a demonstration of a Passover Seder to show how all the elements of Passover point to the Messiah and are fulfilled in Jesus. I think I marked out my calendar. That looks really good. And then the diaper driver for Larkspur Elementary. See Dial for more information in your dial. Dial is the point, for, point man on that. Uh, you can also talk to Carter about uh, the collection of diapers, wipes, and cleaning supplies. Uh, particularly detergent, bleach, and dish soap for families at Larkspur Elementary. Please drop your donations in the bin at Ballard Hall. So that's that's pretty simple. Are there any other announcements that I overlooked? Or going once, going twice, and uh, if I may have my lovely wife's help, you have it queued up to record because uh, the record will be unhappy. It's uh, recording. It is, it is recording. In fact, you can walk it up here. Don't be afraid. Come hither, my dear wife. <laughs> Hopefully it's working. Download whatever I can find. Thank you, thank you. Oh, uh, thank you for that audible. Uh, children, you are now dismissed. And uh, that is children, children. We are all children of God. That doesn't mean all of you disappear, of course. But <laughs> All right, let me... Technology, technology. Okay, I'm going to leave it alone. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. As we observe our second Sunday in Lent, we are well underway in our respective efforts to engage in deeper prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. To that end, we should of course pursue a deeper season of prayer while tempering the satisfaction of our appetites through fasting and finally, making the most of every opportunity to consider others who have needs, material needs and, could, and spiritual needs, I might add, who could potentially benefit by our almsgiving, because that is quite a witness unto the least of these. And yet, how often do many of us still struggle to grow spiritually 
during the season of Lent. It's as though sometimes we even feel like that we're going through the motions. So this is definitely for you, this, this homily. In fact, the late Reverend Melville Scott, who was the vicar of Castle Church in Stafford, analyzed the liturgical calendar by summarizing various themes for each of the days of the church year, all contained in a volume titled Harmony of the Collects, Epistles, and Gospels, which is based on the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. And the lectionary, the, the propers, the collects are essentially the same as the 28 prayer book, except the 1662 obviously didn't have Independence Day or Thanksgiving. Those are uniquely ours. But according to the Reverend Scott, the, the pre-Lent actually begins with Septuagesima, uh, and the focus on that is Christian discipline. Sexagesima, the focus is on Christian humility, and Quinquagesima, the focus is on Christian love as we prepare for the penitential season beginning with Ash Wednesday where the focus is repentance, penance, penitence. The first Sunday after Lent, so we learned last week about the uh, temptations of the devil and how our Lord Jesus Christ conquered him with the word. And in the second Sunday after Lent, uh, which is today, we are focusing on the temptations of the flesh. That's our focal point today. Next week, the Lent 3, will be temptations of the world. You see that theme of the threefold enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then Lent 4, which is Rose Sunday, refreshment by grace. Because uh, after all, whenever we hear law, we must needs be have grace and hear more of it. Lent 5, the doctrine of the cross. And again, today we will focus on overcoming the temptations of the flesh in our sanctification. As we consider this aspect of our faith and apply it to our 40-day journey in Lent, let us always remember that we are powerless to engage in such disciplines without the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. As we prayed in the collect, Almighty God, who seest that we have no power of ourselves to help ourselves, keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may, which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So, so that being the backdrop for our epistle reading, let's dive into the epistle. Uh, we're going to be, of course, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. That begins on page 27 of your book of Common Prayer, in case you uh, need to follow along with that. We're going to be primarily sticking to that with some other cross-references. St. Paul begins this pericope as a paranesis. Now, it's humorous when I was actually writing the homily yesterday, you know, for whatever reason, it's programmed into Word to, to autocorrect pericope into periscope as though I was doing a lesson on tactical submarine warfare. But that's not what we're doing today. I'll be preaching a homily. So uh, th- this pericope, which is a sec- essentially a section of Scripture, uh, where it runs along a common theme, Uh, This begins as a paranesis. Now, what is a paranesis? That's a theological term for an instruction or an exhortation to the intended audience. 
And the whole idea of it, in a lot of cases, it's going to be ethical or moral instruction. In Pauline style, Perinesis would normally follow in his epistles the doctrinal instruction. He'll put a lot, a lot of emphasis on what you're to believe. Okay, this is what you're to believe. Now this is what you're to do about it. But in, in this particular epistle, he began with a commendation for the faith of the, of the church in Thessalonica. And their example as well to other believers, followed by a description of his ministry to them and how he looks forward to one day seeing them again. And then we also see that uh, St. Timothy included a very encouraging situation report in it as well. So we then segue from that point to chapter 4, verse 1, which which begins again on page 127 of your prayer book, where we read in the English Standard Version, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. To walk, to walk, from the Greek present active infinitive verb is peripateo, which uh, doesn't necessarily mean physical walking, but it means to conduct one's life to comport oneself or to behave or live as a habit of conduct. So this has everything to do with the way in which we conduct ourselves, the way that we behave, the way that we live our lives. And he had thus far acknowledged that they had been conducting their lives to please God, and he urged them to continue in that pattern. The apostle acknowledges that they've already been walking to please God and just simply to keep doing what they've been doing And yet still, he needed to remind them to live lives of obedience to the instructions in the Lord Jesus Christ that he had already imparted to them. So what were these original instructions? Keep in mind the audience who we're talking about here. The Thessalonians were delivered from paganism after Paul, Timothy, and Silas embarked on the second missionary journey following the Council of Jerusalem, and then had a course change. They didn't do that on their own. God did that for them. They had planned to travel south into the province of Asia and north into Bithynia, and a vision appeared to St. Paul at night. And we read about that vision in the 16th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 9, where we read, And a vision appeared to Paul, In the night, a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And that was the first foray into Europe. In chapter 16, here are some of the highlights. We read about the conversion and baptism of Lydia and her whole household. St. Paul and Silas' imprisonment and how they were freed by the power of God as they sang hymns. As a side note, that's yet another good reason to sing hymns. And in my reflection, what hymn came to mind And it's not actually in in, in her hymnal, but look it up when you get a chance. How many of you have heard of the hymn, And Can It Be, by Charles Wesley? I know you have. 
uh, most of you have. Uh, we used to sing that often, didn't we, Tracy? One of my favorite hymns. And that definitely comes to mind. And why it came to mind was the fourth stanza where we, where we would sing, and I won't sing it for you, I don't want to sing, uh, not at least without your help, where we read, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Isn't that beautiful? That, that is absolutely beautiful. And um, so I'm pretty sure they didn't sing that because that was uh, way before Wesley's time. But anyway, uh, but it, it's a nice thought. But the conversion and baptism of the Philippian jailer did follow that because he was about to kill himself. And they're like, wait, don't. We're all here. Don't go anywhere. And then, of course, the Philippian jailer wondered, what must I do to be saved? So he became a convert along with his whole household. So there's some background there for you. But still, what were the instructions? We haven't heard that part yet. Acts chapter 17 includes that. We read, and I quote, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That would be the Old Testament Scriptures, more than likely the Septuagint explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, what's the significance? The significance of these instructions is that they were antithetical to the understanding of the Jews in the Thessalonian synagogue where they preached. And they were really mad about that because that wasn't how they viewed their Messiah uh, who would actually be the very earthly king that would overthrow Roman rule and everything would be happy, happy ever after. But it, it wasn't that way. It didn't go according to their plan. Because ultimately they rejected the Messiahship of Jesus. And then if that wasn't bad enough, they decided to incite a rent-a-mob in order to stir up trouble against them. But yet, and some of them were persuaded and actually joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. These were the converts that formed the core group of that church, or that church plant, if you will. Likewise, some of us are, are adult converts as well. I know I am. Uh, I became an adult convert at the age of 28, and uh, I praise God for, for his grace. And there are maybe some of you here who share that experience. Or maybe some of you were converted as teenagers or, or younger children. Or maybe some of you are actually cradle converts. And you don't know a time in your life where you, you didn't follow as a disciple the Lord Jesus Christ. But then you still had to make that good confession of faith. Which, of course, we do at our confirmation. But the point being is that each of us, each and every one of us, no matter how you got into the kingdom, have been delivered from the wrath and curse of God, which we all deserved because of both our original and our actual sin. So as such, all of us are called to conduct ourselves in a manner that pleases our, our Lord. And we don't do that to earn salvation but, but we do that to reflect an attitude of our gratitude. Our, our lives should be lived out as a demonstration 
of the gratitude for the grace and mercy that our Lord has bestowed upon us. So we continue in verse 3 of our epistle. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sanctification, or hagiosmos, in the Greek denotes the process of becoming holy. I mean, we're not there yet. Okay, we've been justified by faith and thus have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And to be justified means that we've been declared righteous by the finished work of of Christ. However, in becoming sanctified, that is very much a process, and sometimes it is a painful one as that. And we should be mindful of that in Lent, especially for those of us who struggle with the the flesh in its various forms. In fact, uh, we also read in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, hagiosmos, in earlier Greek literature, uh, the word was used to describe consecration to some religious purpose. But in the epistolary use that, that we see, in the Pauline epistles especially, the apostle actually connects the noun to a much stronger ethical sense and includes the command to abstain from sexual immorality. Why? A little bit of more context here. Well, the apostle taught chastity is not the entirety of sanctification, but a very important element in it, in part because it was one of the three canons that actually came out of the council at Jerusalem, along with not requiring circumcision of the Gentiles or adherence to other Judaic ceremonial laws and not eating meat sacrificed to idols. In Thessalonica, this needed to be stressed on account of their Gentile Greco-Roman culture. You see, because sexual immorality, or porneia in the Greek, means unlawful sexual intercourse, prostitution, unchastity, or fornication. From the outset, the Christian faith is taught that sexual activity must remain within the bonds of holy matrimony between a man and a woman and reserved for none other, much like our Judaic antecedents. However, this concept would have been considered strange to a Greco-Roman culture that allowed for and even encouraged men to have mistresses, concubines, or encounters with ritual prostitutes in the local cult of Kabiri. St. Paul further elaborated when he wrote in verses 4 through 8 that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. In our second Sunday of Lent, the theme, again, is temptations of the flesh. 
For the Thessalonian church, St. Paul had to emphasize the complete breach with acceptable cultural mores. And that was acceptable. Everything I mentioned was acceptable. They have something on the side, basically. Wives were for procreation of legitimate children. Everything else was okay unless you did it in excess. And then at worst, you would be satirized. Okay, so it was a very common thing. So what St. Paul had to say is, don't go back to your former ways. And we can actually apply that to any of the struggles in the flesh that we might have. Don't go back to the former ways of living, especially for those of us who are maybe adult converts who have a longer history uh, of not living according to, uh, to the word of God and according to, to the gospel. But then again, we can also see in our modern cultural context how history repeats itself. It seems like that the boundaries of marriage have been completely obliterated by the pop culture and the anything goes mentality. However, when it comes to sexual ethics, we must remember that God created us for a purpose, which is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Here's the bottom line. Just because the culture says it's okay, doesn't mean it's okay. What God has designed to be a beautiful expression of love between a husband and wife, we have no right to trifle with it or desecrate it. Sadly, though, it happens even in the church of Jesus Christ, where sexual scandal has actually rocked the church in different denominations because this scandal knows no denominational boundaries. However, we must remember that we are temples of the Holy Spirit and thus must honor God with our bodies and to give no provision to the flesh and its carnal appetites. To do otherwise injures our soul and brings shame to the body of Christ. Remember, the first church council decreed that we should abstain from sexual immorality. In fact, it's even clearly stated in our own canons in the Cana Diocese of the West, in case you wanted to look that up. It spells that out in there as well. And also, St. Paul commanded elsewhere that we should flee from it in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 16 through 20, where we read, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And we were bought with, with a price, with the precious blood of the Lamb, not with perishable things such as silver, gold, or the empty ways of life. But then furthermore, as it pertains to marriage, we read in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So what do we take away from that today by way of application? First of all, there are those among us who may carry guilt and shame or feel as though we fall short in part because of past sins or even current struggles 
or even further because we take seriously how our Lord Jesus Christ defined adultery and we find his definition of St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So based on that definition, there are many more among us who have failed to live up to the sexual ethical standard that we see clearly proclaimed in scriptures. If that's the case, do not lose heart and do not lose faith. Do not be discouraged, but we must repent. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you see, died on the cross for our sins and has empowered us with the Holy Spirit to live holy lives. We can't do that in our own strength. We're wholly incapable of that. Again, sanctification is growth. We're not there yet. Glorification will come later. Okay, when, when, when we die, we're in the presence of the Lord. Uh, our body is still decaying in the dust, in the grave. But then at the glorious resurrection, where the dead in Christ will rise, we will one day have resurrected bodies that are perfectly suited for the eternal environment of praising and worshiping the Lord for all eternity, free from the struggles of temptation free from the struggles of the world, the flesh and the devil, free from aches and pains, you know, free from sore backs and bad knees, but, but free from that struggle of lust, of the concupiscence. And good job pronouncing that, number one. Way to go. Because uh, that, that's a tough one. I get, get tongue-tied on that one. But while we're thinking about it, uh, especially when we come to the rail, Let's reflect on the prayer of humble access, which reminds us of our gospel reading today. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property or character in the ACNA standard text is to always have mercy. Our Lord's character is always to have mercy. You know, and the thing is, beloved, uh, he, he doesn't love us because we're good. We're not. There's no one who does good, but he loves us because we, we are his. So today, when you come to the rail, the intersection of time and eternity, where we partake of the body and blood of our Lord, reflect on his tender mercies, which are new each day. Regardless of how we may struggle with the various temptations of the flesh, just remember that our sinful bodies are made, are made clean by his body and our souls are washed through his most precious blood so that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen? Amen. Lastly, when it comes to overcoming the temptations of the flesh, let us remember that our Lord Jesus Christ did not leave us as orphans who must fend for ourselves in that struggle over the flesh, or the world, the flesh, and the devil, but rather he has given us the spirit of adoption. That's good news. In fact, R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, the theologian, once wrote, the grand paradox or supreme irony of the Christian faith is that we are saved both by God and from God. We're saved from his wrath and his curse. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of adoption 
which is a great comfort to us, particularly as we fight sin. Outside of Christ, for those who are not in Christ, we're in a state of fear. Despite our best efforts to suppress the truth, every sin provokes terror, the terror of judgment. For those who are not in Christ know that their end is hell. Once we are in Christ, however, we know God will never kick us out of his family. The Spirit does a sweet work of conviction in Christians. And by the way, if you are convicted in your heart, that's a good sign. If you're apostate, it means that you don't care and you're not even thinking about it. So if you're even worried about having crossed that line into the unforgivable sin, if you're worried about it, you didn't. Okay? But in the process of sanctification, where he brings us to the place of repentance for our sin, he assures us that we are still his. Because again, as another one of my favorite preachers, Steve Brown, says, he doesn't love us because we're good. We know better than that. He loves us because we're his. So beloved, if any of us today feel sorrow, be encouraged. Be encouraged that, again, we wouldn't feel such sorrow if it weren't for the Holy Spirit working in us to engender Godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow doesn't do that. Okay, Godly sorrow does. Worldly sorrow is what Judas had. And he didn't truly repent as far as, as we could see. I'm not going to elaborate on that, but what did he do? He killed himself. But it's the godly sorrow wrought by the power of the Holy Spirit that brings us to that place of repentance. And what does that mean? Well, to think differently about our sin in a way That means that we turn from the willful following of our own sinful flesh and we turn to the cross. We turn to the cross in faith. We turn to the cross empowered by the Holy Spirit. So again, if you're struggling, if you feel guilt or shame, receive the Lord's pardon today and walk in newness of life. Reflect on these things today, especially as we come to the rail where time and eternity intersects. So walk in faith today as we journey through Lent. Amen? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.